This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Can you believe it is April? Like, wow, like we've just gone through a whole quarter of the year, and so if you were looking for that refund on 2022, um, sorry, that your 90 days are up and uh, that you're stuck with it. But anyhow, good to see you this morning. Uh, wow, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, if you can believe that. And so today we're actually wrapping up this series. The next Sunday we're going to focus on the triumphal entry. I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, sometimes you think to yourself, well, you know, should I do something different? You know, I mean, like you, you think this sometimes. Like, okay, we, we do that every year. We talk about the triumphal entry. Shouldn't we just like maybe do something different this year? And then you start thinking about that and you think, isn't that, that kind of the point? We like, we remember and we, we all those things that are, are so key to our faith and so... Anyhow, uh, looking forward to triumphal entry, then uh, followed by Easter, celebration of the resurrection, then uh, April 24th, Brother Kaler is going to be bringing the message on the 24th, and uh, then finally, May 1, wow, look how quickly, see, you see how that just went like that? Um, uh, we're going to start a new series in Romans, which I'm really excited about, so I uh, want to put that on your radar uh, that we'll start that in the beginning of May. On a different note, next Sunday, not only is it Palm Sunday, but it's also Blood Drive weekend. So uh, roll up your sleeves, and let's just show our community the love of Christ through, well, through your blood this time. So um, anyhow, um, but because of the blood of Jesus, right? All right. Well, anyhow, over the last few weeks, you know, we have been talking about what makes the gospel so scandalous in the minds of those who are unacquainted, you know, with, with the gospel. And there's lots of things that, you know, you and I, we, we've heard it a, a number of times. If you spent any amount of time in the church, you've been exposed to things. And so we think of those things as being fairly normal. And we say things to one another that sometimes are, you know, very odd to people who are not acquainted with the gospel. Uh, now, even for church, sometimes it gets really weird. I mean, like people say things to, you know, have you been baptized in the blood, brother? You know, I mean, like that one is always kind of like, skeeves me out. I don't know. I, you know, anyhow, uh, like when are they going to do that and do I have to? Um, but in a bigger way, just as we come into contact with the gospel, the truth is, is that as you and I uh, become more and more acquainted with the gospel and our thought processes change, the way we view the world uh, changes, uh, then we don't realize the impact of some of the things. We don't understand how that uh, affects people when they're coming into contact uh, with the church and, and specifically with the kingdom culture and the upside down way of the gospel. And so uh, I want to talk to you about something this morning in our last uh, part of this uh, that it's interesting enough has actually become rather shocking though to the church. It's, it's part of the gospel message that I think in a way we have somewhat edited for polite church social culture and, and also, you know, there is somewhat of a, dare I say, a false gospel that's developed around it to insulate us, to protect us from the impact of that message so that we, uh, we kind of neuter it. You know, we, we have a way of talking about it that is very comfortable, uh, but which is still a really difficult topic. Um, and so, you know, uh, we say these words all the time that the kingdom of God comes first. If you seek first the kingdom, you know, the kingdom first, we, we use it uh, all the time, regularly say those words. But the question is, is what do we mean by it versus what does Jesus mean by those words? And sometimes we recognize that there is a big gap between those two things. So if you will, let's open our Bibles, app or book. Scroll over to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14. If you're using your phone or tablet, if you'll please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation is in your lap. That's my favorite translation. Let's take a look. 
Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, and we read these words. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish all... Um, Finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Oh, that kingdom of God first. <laughs> you know, that kind that um, drives a wedge, the kind of kingdom first that says not even your family comes before the kingdom. The kind of kingdom first that does not put your comfort, your paycheck, your family, your heritage, your patriotism, or your rights first. That, that kind of kingdom first. I, I'm pretty sure that I wasn't the only person as we read that, who was struggling with that kind of kingdom first. Would, would that be fair? Am I the only one in the room that felt like a little uncomfortable as, you, as I was reading that passage? That I mean, you know, like all these things that we hold so dear. Or did we read it in a, you know, a, a kind of church culture kind of way in which we were neutering it, even as we were reading it, in, in which, you know, that what we mean is, is that, well, you know, I mean, like, you, you, yeah, you, you shouldn't love those things more, but, um, you know, uh, what do we mean? I don't know about you, but I, there's sometimes I have this subtle way of skirting the issue as I'm reading that, especially with regard to my family. I'm, I, I, I say to myself, well, he doesn't mean that. Anybody do that while you're reading? And recognizing that I'm not completely excavating that part of my heart when I say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but growing up in the United States, I have had little struggle with the idea of losing anything in order to be a Christian. I, I mean, to be really honest, I, I know that there's been moments of uncomfortableness. Uh, that's a lot different than losing anything. For instance, I mean, you know, when I got saved and I started, like, learning how to share the gospel, like, right off the bat, I, I'll be honest, I did lose a few friends, you know, um, as I was desperately trying to share the gospel, uh, you know, with everybody and, and that would listen for just a moment. I had a few friends that decided that was uncomfortable and they backed away from me and I mean, nobody hated me, nobody did me any harm, but I, I lost a few friends in that process. Some of my siblings, um, they, they weren't interested in the gospel, they weren't all that particularly interested in me if I was honest about it. I'm the baby of six, you know, and so like the closest one to my age is nine years older than me. Some of them are as much as 17 years older than me. And so when your baby brother starts telling you how you ought to live your life, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> no, not so much. Um, especially after it was that baby brother who was the most difficult child to raise, but not that I'm saying I was or anything, but 
And, um, and so some of my siblings that were not so close to me to begin with, they, they kind of turned away from me. I, they, they will talk to me if I approach them. They just, you know, when they do vacation in Florida, they don't stop. I'll put it that way. But if I'm honest, that following Jesus has cost me little. Really, honestly. When, in terms of what I, I look at it, in those early Christians who like were cut off from their families, who were cut off from their incomes, who were cut off from parts of their society, who lost jobs, who lost their lives, who gave up everything in order to follow Jesus. It's, it's still true in places in the world, uh, and particularly if you get into what we call the 1040 window, between the 10 and 40 parallels on the, glo- uh, the globe, just kind of that band right across the middle uh, uh, and going, looking over, uh, especially in Central Asia, East Asia, so forth. There, there's definitely this sense in which many people give up everything in order to follow the gospel. But in our culture, especially in the Bible Belt, it's relatively easy to follow Christ, I, to be a Christian. Um, I, occasionally, I've had something rude said or something, but uh, it's never really threatened me. My dad wasn't particularly fond of my decision to be a pastor, but he didn't disinherit me. He continued to express his love for me, even as he expressed his disappointment for me settling on something less admirable than being a lawyer. Some of you are thinking, less admirable? Yes. (laughs) Welcome to my world when I was growing up. My family being Roman Catholic, they were displeased that I was going to a Protestant seminary. If I was going to be a pastor, that meant I should not be interested in getting married and I should be a priest and at least, you know, be willing to give up something, you know, and... um, But yet, here's the thing, it was never enough to stop me, and in fact, my cousin, who was a priest, Father John Tickle, like, I remember at my father's funeral, him defending my decision. He said, well, you know, better a sober, faithful Protestant than a drunken, unfaithful Catholic. It was a long dinner. (laughs) I sat next to him the rest of the evening talking because he was the only one talking to me at that moment. Love John dearly. Some of you, your family may or not may not be enthusiastic about your faith, but what does it mean that for you and I really truly to put the kingdom first, that that we would in some way walk away from anything. I mean, especially for us in 21st century America, I mean, we see some things closing in on us and, our, and the changes, the shifts in our social culture, our society uh, approaches us differently. We're not in the favored status that we once in, uh, you know, uh, enjoyed. And uh, I think anytime you were at, at one place where you were in greatly admired and a really good comfortable place and then it shifts away from you of course automatically you feel like we're being persecuted and uh and and we probably said those things i've said those things that kind of like you know frustrated disappointed uh that sometimes we deal with all of that but yet the reality is is that well the reality is is that it's not our reality we are not really, truly persecuted. We are sometimes inconvenienced. We are sometimes put down. We are sometimes made to feel silly or unwelcome. But that's a long way from the sense of the the gospel costing us everything. So I think there's something much deeper that we're wrestling with. In this text and in that context, Jesus was speaking honestly, about the idea of dying to self, right? Of, of where the dear self has had its way with us. And when you and I come into contact with the gospel, there is, uh, I, I, by necessity, that change uh, of the shift in our heart and our, the center of our thinking moves from being about us in our things and our family and our this and our that to being truly Christ-centered and then secondarily uh, in being Christ-centered then other-centered. 
Um, it, it's a shift in the way that we look at people and view life um, so that we are constantly then uh, putting ourselves not down or something like that. That's not what it means to die to self. It doesn't mean that I lose uh, favor or I, I stop liking myself or something. That's completely would miss the point of what it means to die to self in the sense of the gospel. In the sense of the gospel, it's not that I think less of myself, it's that I think less often about myself. I think of myself in the second and third place, not in the first place, but the normative of the world, right? I mean, normal in the world is that I'm first place. Even as I think about my children and things like that, like I, I, I said this to my daughter the other day, I said, you know, the one beautiful thing about children is that it will absolutely knock the selfishness out of you when you start having children. When you start reorienting your life around a child and at three o'clock in the morning fevers happen and you have to, and, you know, or, or something else happens and you have to strip the bed in the middle of the night and comfort that child while you are grumpy, it will help knock the, the selfishness out of you. I, and other things out of you, right? In that moment, there is a, there, there's the, the dear self is put uh, on notice, but, but here's the thing is that even still in that, like I recognize that there is also a sense of self in my children. My, the way they endear themselves to me, it's in part because they are mine and and I, I would endure a whole lot more from them than I would endure from anybody else, right? And that sense of connection. And, and so there's still a, a great deal of self that's wrapped up in, in that whole thing. So then when Jesus speaks to this whole thing of us dying to ourself, it's really less about mother and father and children and siblings that he's talking about and, and so much more about to that near and dear. And so the, these serve to illustrate, if you will. But Jesus' real challenge to them is, is back at that dear self. Whatever is dearer to the self than the king in the kingdom that I would die to those things so that the kingdom really is preeminent in my heart, in my thought process of, of why I do what I do, of how I orient my life, of how I spend my money, how I spend my time, how I spend my energy, the things that I think about, the things I put first in my thought process, my life process. Um, you know, I, I, one of my friends that is really kingdom-oriented, um, uh, I, I won't mention by name just simply because um, uh, this is online. And so uh, I, I don't want to get into the details of this, but I'll just simply say this. I have a friend of mine who is very kingdom oriented. And um, he has a business that's very, very successful. And, and I just always love watching uh, him uh, and how easily things flow through his hands uh, keeps extra cars around to help single moms to help pastors who are having troubles uh, financially or whatever and just there, there, there's just tons of vehicles on his insurance that he he's always uh, uh, doing something to help somebody and I, I watch how uh, easily finances he grew up very poor himself and though now he is very well off uh, he lives in just a very modest home, uh, and, and how much of his resources flow out of his hands into other people's hands, and, and just the blessing that he is to everyone around him. Uh, you, you get within his uh, circle, and it doesn't take long for just blessing to overflow into your life because he just wants to express that, his willingness to put himself sometimes into really difficult situations, even traveling abroad. Uh, seeing him do a lot of things for the sake of the gospel that uh, could have jeopardized his income, his livelihood, um, his life. And I'm just always impressed at how kingdom-oriented he really is in that way. But one of the things I also noticed was that uh, uh, one of his uh, uh, extended family members that works in the company like is always complaining about how he does so much for other people. And like, I remember having this 
really terse conversation one time. It was very one-sided. I was being railed at because he was helping me, and this person said, well, all of you church people just take advantage of him. And, you know, like, I believe in helping one's family, but this is stupid. And I thought in that moment, like, as I was listening to this, how little appreciation they had for all that he had done to make them wealthy. But it was never enough. And the fact that he was helping other people and blessed other people and sometimes even made other people quite well off in that process, they just viewed that with such contempt, even though he had really been so helpful to them. And all I could think was, you know, that really is, though, she was expressing like a, pro- a thought process in terms of how the world functions, right? Like uh, mine first, me first, m- you know, all those kind of things. And, and yet my friend was in such, in, in every way about him, trying to exert the idea that he wanted to be a blessing for the sake of the kingdom to other people, whether they were from his church or anything else. He just, he was always putting things first in in terms of the kingdom. And when you would ask him, like, what motivated you? He would always say, he goes, well, I just keep listening for what Jesus tells me. And he goes, I just do it in that moment. I just don't think about it. And so I watched one time where uh, he had uh, received a large sum of money. He had it in his pocket. um, And uh, I, I was, we were in a situation where he just felt like, this, we'd come into counter with somebody and um, they were telling him some things about what was going on in their life. And I watched as he just reached in and grabbed that same envelope. And I knew, like, like it was stacked with hundreds and twenties in that envelope. And how in that moment, he just, like, without a second thought, reached in, grabbed it out, and just handed it to the person. And I was like, what'd you just do? (laughs) Like, that's crazy. And I asked him, I said, what what, what made you do that? And he said, he goes, I just felt like that's what God told me to do. I said, do you you know how much was in it? He said, no, I have no idea. He goes, and I don't want to know. He says, it's really irrelevant. He says, everything I have, everything that I have come to be in growing up uh, in, in such poverty and everything else, he goes, here's the thing I, I found, he says, is that as long as my hand was open, it could be filled. But the moment that I closed my hand, then that meant that nothing could come into it either. Now, I'm not talking about generosity. I'm, I'm actually, I'm truly talking about this whole idea of, that like, of dying to self because at the crux of a lack of generosity really comes that whole thing of that where there's this fear that there's not enough and I have to get mine. It comes back to that deeply rooted sense in which, you know, the dear self isn't going to get all that it needs or that mine won't get there what, what they need and things. And when we're putting God first, we tend to think of things that we value we hope that God would not ask us of that, right? I mean, isn't that one of the first things when, when, you're, when you're confronted with it, uh, probably even right now as we're talking about this, you're running through the things in your mind wondering, but what if God asked me to give up that? What if God asked me to turn loose of them? What if God, what if, what if can be a really painful subject? Here's the reality is that oftentimes what if actually never happens, right? And we, we, we have a tendency to borrow trouble based on what we, we, we imagine in our minds. We, we create scenarios. Uh, I, I've often heard it said, you know, that, um, that what, make, what we're afraid of is not the fear of the unknown, it's the fear of the known. These are the things I know, and I, I'm afraid of letting go of those things. I'm afraid. I, I've seen things happen. I, there's a known, actually, and so there's, that's what we actually fear. It's the things that we uh, dwell upon in our minds that 
somehow we might lose this or that. And in the heart of it, he says, that's, that, that, the, the, that is the struggle. That's the struggle between the kingdom first and the kingdom second. I mean, that really is the, the thing is if you look at the Ten Commandments and you see the, the, the relationship there between the Ten Commandments, if you stop thinking about them as arbitrary rules of don't do this and really begin to look at them in the sense of context and relating to other people, those first two rules about not making idols and, and about putting God first, like that, that whole concept really is that everything comes down to kind of to the to uh, that that spirit of idolatry, where there's something that I want and I put first, and and you and I could go into the whole thing in Genesis, right? And we can look at the fall and that the question that are being asked there, like, isn't God keeping something from you? And the issue in that moment isn't the apple, is it? We don't even know that it's an apple. But do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not the fruit. The fruit really isn't the issue. The fruit is, is that deep in their heart, there's this sense in which somehow I might miss out on something. I. I is the center of sin, isn't it? I mean, at least in English. But practically speaking, I mean, that is the that's, that's the crux that you and I deal with is, is I. But in terms of all the things that I value in the world, there's nothing wrong with those things that I value. Here in the teaching, there is no sense in which he is saying that he's actually wanting you to hate your parents, your siblings, your children. Now, we have plenty of admonitions that are contrary to that in the Scripture. It's not like there's a battle between these Scriptures in which uh, he's saying, I I know I told you to love your uh, children. I know you told you to love your wife. I know I told you, but don't. It's not that kind of thing. It's, that's not the scandal. The scandal is that deep in the the core of it is that whether those things, what's first is... God actually first. Are those things the benefits, the overflow, the gifts of God, or do I worship those things? That in itself is what idolatry really is all about. It's when I take what is supposed to be subscribed simply and only to the Father, and I begin to attribute it to other things, created things, and then they have mastery over me. They become my God, as it were. They replace God. See, idolatry really isn't so much about things, whether they're carved of stone or wood or gold or something else. It's that I subscribe, I, that I, I give to that which is created what I is only due to the Father. And in that moment, that's where idolatry really seeps into my heart. So my idol could be me, it could be my family, it could be my cars, it could be my home, it could be any number of things. It's really whatever is most precious to the dear self, that is idolatry. If it's not, first and foremost, the king in the kingdom. Now, that means it could be a person, could be a thing, could be an attitude, could be an ideology, could be comfort, could be control. One of the things I have figured out over the years, and maybe you have done the same, but if you haven't, I want to admonish you that um, the important time to figure out what is most important to you is in the calm, not in the storm. In the midst of peace, not in the midst of battle. Because here's the thing is that if you start to process that where the circumstances are crowding you in or they are clobbering you, your circumstances will dictate to you, your feelings will dictate to you what is most valuable in the moment. And in this passage, Jesus is telling his listeners, look, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to count the cost, the cost of of dying to self, of taking up the cross. Now, 
I don't know if you were here the week that I preached on the scandal of the cross, but I want you to think back when you hear this verse. See, it's really easy in church ease, right, in Christian ease, to hear that in a completely different way than the way those disciples heard it in that moment. See, when Jesus was talking there about the cross, he had not been to the cross yet. The, see, in where we have flipped the script and now the cross is this thing that is, is so powerfully symbolic to us in a redemptive way, in a follow Jesus kind of way. I mean, we, we stick it on church buildings. We stick it on our walls, right? We like to have it there, especially if it's Easter Sunday. You know, we want the cross to be front and center and all this. We wear it in jewelry. We tattoo it on our bodies. I mean, like, but I want you to think about the way they were hearing it in that moment. There had been no redemptive process, nothing. All they saw in the cross was this Roman torture all they saw in the cross was this sense of when they would walk by it and watch people dying over days, suffering as the animals picked at their flesh. It was gruesome. So when he says it to them, what I want you to do is I want you to pick up your cross. You cannot be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and you go that way with me. See, they... They lived in that world where the crosses dotted the highways, where the Romans used it to, to badger them and to beat them down into submission, and he's telling them to pick up their cross. It's not like you and I hear that. Oh, yes, I need to pick up my cross. What they heard was revulsive. The ugly specter of Roman domination, the instrument of torture and death, the foreshadowing then that they would later get out of that because of what was spoken by Jesus just didn't exist in the context of when it was spoken the first time. There was no resurrection. There was no triumph over sin and death in that moment. It was just death, socially egregious death. And so when he said, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, he was talking about the brutal nature of how hard it is to die to self uh, uh, and that the long, torturous process, right? I mean, anybody notice that? That, that, you don't, that at moments you feel like you've died to yourself and other moments you recognize that how tightly you're clinging to the dear self in other situations? It's not something that you and I just simply get under wraps one time and we go, oh, whew. Glad I got that taken care of. But instead that you and I find ourselves kind of over and over again picking up the slow work of the cruciform conversion, becoming like him in his death so that we can live like he lived. Unless you see yourself like that, unless you adopt that cruciform life. He says, you can't be my disciple. It's not like he's saying, I, I revoke permission. He's just simply saying that these things are incompatible. They don't go together. I, you know, it's just like, I'm, if, if I don't give you the key, I'm not saying that, you, that I, I'm not giving, it's not about permission. If you don't have the keys, you can't start the car. If you don't put gas in the tank, you cannot drive from here to California. It's not that I'm telling you that you're not able or that you don't have permission. I'm just telling you it won't work. You're going to have to fill up the tank several times between here and there or charge the car if you're in a Tesla or whatever. You know, I mean, I, 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 whatever it is, I don't care. But the, the point is, is that what we're talking about is not a lack of permission. He's not saying that you can't be my disciple because I don't want you to follow me or something like that. He's saying it's just not, you're just not able because something else will always be in first place and will always be competing and always driving you away from me. Something else, whether it is your mother or your brother or your children or, your, or, or, or whatever else. I mean, just go through the litany of things. What is standing between you and me and that real sense of deep obedience that comes out of real love? If there's something else you love more, 
it's just not possible. And so it's, it's not very user-friendly, it's not very seeker-sensitive. Uh, and I don't mean that in a judgmental or a mean way, I just simply mean, I think it's important for us to take stock and ask ourselves, like what has to die in me? What has to die in Hal Hester? in order for me to be a fully formed disciple, to live a really, a truly cruciform life. What? And then, here's the other thing I ask myself regularly. Does the gospel that I regularly preach and teach on Sunday morning and in my newsletters, does that lead people to the kind of cruciform Christianity that people would be authentic disciples of Jesus? It is pretty scandalous, isn't it, what we're asking? Jesus addresses why this is so critical to our thinking, our preaching, our self-evaluation. He says, listen, no one builds a tower without counting the cost. He doesn't mean that nobody has. He means it's foolish. You know, the reality is you and I, by living in Florida, have seen a number of half-built homes, right? Right? I, I can remember when I first moved here, especially driving through the Rivard ne- neighborhood, and then there was like probably half dozen houses in that neighborhood that were just abandoned projects from the last housing crash. They reminded me every time I saw them, every time I looked at that, and, and even trying to like ask the question, is there some way that you could finish the job because houses were a bit scarce when I first moved here. They're not now, but they were, well, maybe they're getting scarce again, but, um, but even like asking the question, could we just finish the job, got so complicated, it became almost impossible. So whether by losing resources or a house of cards economy or whatever thing, when, when everything collapses, you know, you may not be able to finish things, but overall, what you and I recognize when we see the half-built house, that half-built business, is what we think is somebody didn't count the cost. Like, right? That's, that's the sense that we get in here. Or that no king goes to war without first considering the cost, primarily in terms of lives. Again, he doesn't mean no one. Plenty of nations have waved the white flag in pain and loss, but it is normal, right? It is normal to count the cost first. It's, it's wise to count the cost first. And so Jesus invites us just to do that, to, to think in terms of what does it really mean to follow him? To, what does it mean to put my hand to the plow? He says anyone who puts their hand to that plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. It, it is this sense of hard line in the sand that he is challenging us with to think about how we're doing life. Why are we doing it? It, 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 it so goes in the face of this kind of Americana Christianity that says, well, I'll just get saved so that I don't go to hell. I think we do people a real disfavor, disfavor when we preach the gospel that way. Not because we want people to go to hell. I, I, I mean, sometimes we convince people that like, you know, when they come to the gospel, that everything's just going to get better. It's what we call gospel lift. It's true that when you and I come to the gospel, that it changes our lives for the better, and we begin to do some things. We tend to become more disciplined. We tend to become, uh, we quit doing things that are destructive behaviors and stuff like that, and there is this sense of lift. We've, we've documented that well, especially in missions and foreign missions, whenever the gospel comes into a community, that it begins to change some things for the better. People begin to behave in a way that is conducive uh, financially to them and they start to rec- they start to reap some immediate blessing from coming to the gospel and but here's the thing is that that's kind of like a benefit it isn't the purpose of the gospel right i mean the purpose of the gospel is for you and i to be transformed to become 
in the image of Christ and to conduct ourselves in the way that he does life and so that that gospel then permeates the rest of the world and it's constantly drawing people and that the benefits of the gospel, things like eternal salvation, hope, uh, uh, the, even the financial benefits that sometimes come our way uh, from uh, gospel lift and things like that, that those are all like secondary and tertiary. Those, those are not the main point. The main point that why we come to the gospel is that we want the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can live and be with God, experience his presence, to know him, to spend eternity with him. Now, absolutely, I'm, I'm in no hurry to go to hell. How about you? Right? I mean, it is, it is a definite benefit but it is not the primary reason in which we pursue him. The primary purpose has to be that we want to be with him, that we like him. Because if you don't actually like him and you don't like his ways, like getting saved isn't going to like immediately fix that for you. In fact, can I just tell you, I, I've just met a lot of Christians over the years, church folks, who with one breath will talk about how much they love God and with the second breath complain bitterly about his ways, about the impact that those ways have on his familial relationships, the people he loves and things like that. You know? and, and so what, we, what I actually hear is, well, I, I like the getting saved part. I just don't like God and I don't like his ways. In which case... I would have to say that I think we sold somebody a bill of goods and they agreed to something that is not saving faith. And that worries me, right? Because in some ways, maybe what we've actually done is inoculated them against the gospel. You know what inoculate, how inoculation works? It's when you give somebody the dead virus and you inject it in them so then their body learns how to fight off the real thing. And sometimes when we give people kind of that false gospel that's all just about me and I, what we actually do is we inoculate people against the real gospel, the kind that, where we lay our lives down, the kind where we're absolutely being transformed, the kind where we think that everything else becomes secondary to the purpose of the kingdom. And then they start hearing that real authentic preaching at different places and they go, whoa, gosh, I didn't sign up for that. And they fend off the real message. And we wonder why that they are so unhappy if they continue to attend church. Answer? They got another gospel. They were injected with something that was less than come and die to yourself. So it's imperative that you and I count the cost, uh, uh, count them before it rains, before the storms of life, before the disasters, the earthquakes, you know, uh, evaluating like why, what is it about the gospel that I'm being called to? What is it? It's, it's, it's invitation, right? And the invitation is to do life with God, to experience eternal life even in the present now and to live and have my being in Christ. And out of that, like is the overflow of those things brings many great blessings, but I have to evaluate faith based not on my circumstances, not on the comforts, but on the purpose to do life with him and to extend that life to the whole world and that everything else comes literally after that, not just figuratively not just kind of somewhat emotionally or, but that I earnestly, honestly move everything around in my life, my calendar, my thoughts, my resources, everything to put the kingdom first. And if you don't do that, 
like in the peaceful moments, like when the storms of life come, if I've not died to self, then when the dear self is challenged, we will fail. Because whatever is most dear to self will prevail. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the message of the gospel isn't going to improve your marriage. I know that's a real popular thing right now. A lot of, we tell people come to church, it'll improve your marriage. It might. I mean, when you die to yourself and you, and you become less selfish and less self-centered, it might actually help your marriage, just saying. When you begin to put everyone and everything else second to the kingdom, though, it might make it really hard. Here's what it won't do. It will not make your teeth whiter, your breath fresher, or your hair shinier. It just simply invites us to die to ourselves and everything that is precious to the dear self. And then when we put everything else and all of creation in its rightful place, it's a huge blessing. It was just never meant to be your God. You cannot serve two masters. Let's stand together, shall we? So as I said, church historians, sociologists, all have often noted throughout history the power of gospel lift. You know, they first noted it like in, in some of the, the most backwards places in the world and where when the gospel came in and that sense of, uh, of identity with Christ made them do things differently. Maybe if they were animists, they recognized that uh, uh, animists would leave trash and different things out about around their homes, uh, hoping to make their place look desolate so that uh, the, the demons wouldn't come after them. They wouldn't know that there was anybody in the home. And then once they became confident that God was in them and able to overcome uh, those demonic spirits that they had nothing to be afraid of. They began to clean up their yards, their homes, to make it look as though it were lived in, to decorate, to uh, uh, do nice things in their yard in terms of plants and things like that because they weren't afraid anymore. Sometimes it was just simple in the idea that as they put uh, the gospel and other people first, that they began to uh, conduct themselves and their livelihood in a better way that was more honorable brought glory to God. When the gospel comes into someone's life, they do tend to become more responsible, less selfish, more humble, teachable, and listen better. They tend to be kinder because of the permeating power of the gospel. And so all those things do improve a person's social life and standing in the community. But oftentimes those side benefits, the, the gospel lift, gets repackaged as the primary call to the gospel. And we turn the gospel into a self-help desk of pseudo-psychology. And the real call of the gospel? The real call of the gospel is come and die to yourself. There can't be two different gospels. There can only be one true gospel. And so I would say to you this morning, if, if you were sold that whole thing of the that secondary, that other gospel, that, that other sense of that, like uh, it was all about improvement and things like that, and you find like that, that these two things are butting heads right now in your heart, like you, you're just wrestling with those things. I want to invite you in just a moment. Uh, I'm going to have the uh, uh, prayer team go ahead and come on up. And as they're coming, maybe that's this morning, maybe that's what the Lord is speaking to you about is like exchanging that other gospel for the pure gospel, where you would uh, simply lay down uh, all those side benefits, uh, as it were, not because they're bad, right? It's not like they're sinful in themselves, but recognizing that, that is what the, that's the thing that's taken first place in your heart. You've been waiting for God to like transform those things in your life, to do things in your life, and when the gospel hasn't exactly worked out like that, maybe you've been disappointed 
in the gospel. Maybe you've been disappointed in that church didn't absolutely just change your life, save your marriage, uh, you know, and, and make your teeth whiter and brighter. Um, and I don't say that to be funny. I, I'm just, I know that can be really painful. And so sometimes we just kind of have to laugh a little bit together and then press in. So maybe that's your invitation today. Maybe it's just simply to say, you know, I, I realize that I bought into a different gospel than the one that says die to self. I bought into a different gospel that said that the first things are the things of the kingdom, not my things. And so uh, I invite you to come get some prayer for that. Others you may be fully aware, maybe that's been working in you, but you recognize that there are places in your heart that need excavating, that you need to dig into and to deal with, that even though uh, outwardly you have, would express those same things, you've said it again and again, the kingdom first, the, the gospel first, uh, yet you recognize that there are places in your heart, things you need to deal with, and let me invite you to come get some prayer this morning. And then, of course... You know, you could have any other number of needs this morning, maybe for physical healing, maybe uh, for financial uh, woes in your life, struggles that you're having, and you just need some prayer this morning. So let me invite you to come as well. So, Father, we thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you that your spirit is here among us, moving in us, giving us strength, uh, pushing us ever toward uh, a truly cruciform life that you uh, are constantly calling and uh, bringing things to the forefront that, so that we might grow in our relationship with you. We thank you for the moments when your spirit comes in power and we see great things happen in our lives and the ball moves forward uh, toward the goal in a way that we never expected and that brings great joy but we also recognize that there are moments when we are down and out, when our face is in the mud, so to speak, and we need your encouragement to get back up, to continue to press in. And so, Lord, we ask right now, would you be with us, fill us with your spirit, with direction, with wisdom, with power, so that the gospel would not just be good news, to those who are afar off, but it would be good news to me in the right here and now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.